So let's go back to the law of obedience. Tell me where we first made that covenant. It is not in the temple we first make that covenant, right? Where do we first make that covenant? Baptism. So coming into the kingdom, coming out of the celestial world and into the church, we, we promise to obey. But what's the essence of that obedience? Tell me what kind of obedience eight-year-olds promise and new converts who have very little experience in the church. What level of obedience do we, be, do we promise at that point? Come on in. I promise to develop a habit, a discipline. I promise to just do it, right? We see this in Adam. Adam was brand new, very young, very experienced, and he was told to offer sacrifices, and he did so. Why? I don't know. I was told to, and I did it. That's a discipline of obedience. So when we go to the temple, why remake that covenant? We've already made the covenant of obedience. I, I covenanted to obey when I was baptized. Why remake that covenant in the temple? I get, I, I get that repetition is great, but how often do we repeat that initial covenant? How often do we remake the initial covenant of obedience? Every single Sunday. So why in the temple do we remake the covenant of obedience? Well, it's different now. The purpose of the temple is to push us from terrestrial to celestial. So we've, we should have developed a discipline of obedience before we even get to the temple, right? Could you go to the temple if you haven't developed that discipline of obedience? No. So why remake the covenant? It's changing our motives. I promise not to obey as much as it's I promise to what? Desire obedience. I promise to change the reasons I obey. My motivation for obeying. And we, we, we move past a discipline of obedience and start to create what? A disposition of obedience. Is, is obedience something God does? I mean, clearly he does it, but is, is that the heart and soul of the issue here? Is it something he does or is it something he is? It's just his nature. And that's temple obedience. Now, that's what, that's what we did last week. And this one we've already done. So when do we first start to address the law of sacrifice in the church? We wait until I go into the temple to start making the law of sacrifice? Well, think Old Testament. How do you even get into the temple itself? What do you pass on your way into the temple? The altar of sacrifice. So sacrifice began when we were invited to give up the celestial things of this world and enter a terrestrial state of living. We were first asked to sacrifice all things celestial. Now, if you are making some progress in that, if you are making progress in letting go of celestial things, now you go into the temple and what's the next invitation? 
now I'm going to give up all things terrestrial. The invitation is to sacrifice terrestrial, to let it go, to let go of all things terrestrial. Should we do a few examples? From the covenants we make in the temple, name one thing I'm asked to let go of. Name one terrestrial thing I'm asked to let go of. Start in the initiatory. Let go of the terrestrial things you think about. Now I'm supposed to let go of the telestial things I do before I even get to the temple. Once I get to the temple, the invitation is, now what? Do you remember how Jesus said, you've heard in old times, thou shalt not kill. Now I'm telling you, don't. So there's something I'm supposed to sacrifice. Some thoughts. Words. You see the idea? My words, what I listen to, what I desire. Okay, why do we all wear white? What is he asking me to let go of, to sacrifice? In the very, in the, in the very invitation of everyone wears the same color. Sacrifice what you're holding on to in terms of status. Let go of the ites. You get the idea? That is so essential to temple worship, is that you are invited to let go of all things terrestrial. Now that we've been talking about for weeks. So now let's move on. Do you begin to see a challenge here? I just promised I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to let go of everything that's celestial and terrestrial. Could you help me know what kind of things those are? Don't you see the logic here? To me, this is so logical. I'm going to obey everything that Heavenly Father asks me to obey. Don't I need then a source of that information? Don't I need a source of what he's asking me to do? I promise to do everything he's asked me to do. Okay, well, where, where do I look to find where he's asked me to do stuff? I promise to let go of everything celestial and everything terrestrial. Okay, what is that? What is terrestrial and what is celestial? Don't you, think, don't you see what we need next? What I need next is a system that will tell me what to obey and what to let go of. Could you wrap it up and put a bow on it so that I know where the instructions are to be obedient? And how or what are the celestial and terrestrial things I need to let go of? So the Lord says, you know what? I will give you such a system. I will provide that information. I will give you a package wrapped up in a neat little bow. And in that package, you will find what you need to do and what you need to let go of. So what's the next covenant? 
to obey that system. And we call that system the law of the gospel. Why law of the gospel? Why law of the gospel? We have already defined gospel. Okay, let's start with this word. Let's define gospel. Turn with me to 3 Nephi chapter 27. Let's define gospel. And then we're going to add law of. We need to be very careful and point out that Jesus has very clearly described what is the gospel. Starting in, so here's the setting of 27. So Jesus has gone away, and when he comes back, they're arguing. Tell me what they're arguing over. The name of the church. Such a stupid thing to argue over, right? What do we call the church? And, and the Savior lovingly basically says what? Whose church is it? What's yours? Okay, then call it after me. And so in verse 8, he says, if it's my church, it has my name. But then he throws in one more element at the end of verse 8. Just because it carries his name doesn't make it his church. Yes, it needs to carry his name, and it has to be built upon my gospel. So then in verse 13, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So 13, this is the gospel which I have given you. What does he say in 21? That's the gospel. So according to the Savior himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ fits between verses 13 and 21. So let's find it. Let's, let's identify from his own lips what is the gospel, the good news. Who wants to be my reader? Start at 13. We're going to jump around. I'm going to stop you a couple times, but just start at 13. Keep going. Okay, so the heart and soul of the gospel is his atonement. Now, because of his atonement, keep going. Okay, so what do we call the lifting up of men by the Father? When will all men be lifted up by the Father? Okay, so because of the power of his atoning sacrifice, there will be a universal resurrection. And everyone will be brought to the Father to keep going. Okay, so every single human being on this planet by the power of the atoning sacrifice, are going to be brought forth to stand before the Father. And you will account for your life. You will be judged. Now, the good news is that there are three words that can describe you on Judgment Day. You need not panic. There are three words that can describe you. Verse 16 has one word. Tell me the word in verse 16 you would like to describe you when you stand before the Father on Judgment Day. Guiltless. I want to be guiltless. I want to stand there with no guilt. Okay, verse 19. What's the word? And this one's my favorite. I'll be honest. This one means the most to me 
because I don't have to get there flawless. The goal isn't to stand before the Father flawless. The goal is to stand before the Father washed. Flawless is not the goal, but washed is. Verse 20, what's the word in verse 20? Sanctification so that. Sanctification isn't the goal. Sanctification by receiving the Holy Ghost so that I stand spotless. Now that refers to Isaiah, right? He's pointing to Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins be as scarlet. So what's the imagery here? I am wearing red spots. My sins are as scarlet. They be red like crimson. Now Jesus goes into Gethsemane wearing what color? I am positive he went in wearing white. And because of what happened in there, he came out wearing red. So I'm going to meet him there. I meet Jesus in Gethsemane and I go in wearing. And because of an exchange, I come out wearing white. There's the good news. I will take your spots. When Jesus comes at the second coming, what color will he wear? He will not be wearing white. He will be wearing red, symbolically having taken all our... I will be wearing what color at the second coming? Because he took my... Do you see the idea? So the offer on the table is, when you stand before the Father, you can be guiltless, washed, and spotless. If... And all he asks are... How many things do you think I'm going to put on this list? 20? 100? Five. Five things. Ironically, how many covenants do we make in the temple? Hmm, there's something about that number that's magical. If I do five things, that's his promise. So let's find the five things. Keep reading in verse 16. I don't want blue. Huh? Let's read them one at a time. Let's start in verse 16. Who was my reader? I forgot who was my reader. Okay. St verse 16. Oh. Verse 16. She jumped. I'm sorry. You're good. Okay, pause, pause, pause. You got to go slow. We're going to make a list here. It shall come to pass that whoso repenteth. Where do we typically put that on our list of five? That's number two. I must repent. I must repent. Keep going. Be baptized and where do we typically put endure to the end? That's number five. So Jesus says, if you will repent, make a covenant where you promise obedience and endure to the end, you'll be guiltless. Keep going. Watch what he repeats and watch what he adds. Verse 19. Okay, verse 19. And no one can 
By, keep going. Faith, where do we put, typically put faith? That's number one. You want to be washed, have faith. Now watch what he repeats. Keep going. So I'm going to put tally marks every time he mentions one. He's now repeated repentance and repeated enduring to the end. Now we only have one verse left and by 22, 21, he's done. So watch him summarize the entire plan of salvation, the gift of the atonement, the gospel in verse 20. One more. Okay. Now, this is the whoa, 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 whoa. Now, how many times has he mentioned repentance? Three times. Keep going. That you may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, and that, that you may stand spotless before me in the last day. So he commands me to receive the Holy Ghost. Is he commanding the Holy Ghost to be with me? No, he's commanding me to receive the Holy Ghost. And if I do those things, I will be guiltless, washed, and spotless. And then 21, he says, simply. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. That's it. It's not complicated. The gospel of Jesus Christ is having faith, repenting, making covenants, receiving the Holy Ghost, and doing that for my life. And if I do that, his part is to wash me, take my spots, and wash me clean so that I am guiltless before the Father. So what then would you conclude is the law of the gospel? If that's the gospel, what is the law of the gospel? All the instructions. All the instructions that lead me to do this. Is tithing on that list? Now, is tithing the end or the means? So what, what end does the means of tithing lead to? Faith? Do you see it? In other words, I don't, I don't get credit for simply paying my tithing. Tithing is a means of increasing my faith giving me an opportunity to repent and keep a covenant so that I receive promptings from the Holy Ghost and live a life of celestial living. If tithing doesn't lead me to these five, I wasted my time paying my tithing. Tithing is not an end. Tithing is a means. And it's part of the law of the gospel that leads me to these things. James? Yes. The Lord speaks to us in our Western thinking modality, right? Here's the scientific method. Everything leads to this bubble. Okay, how about word of wisdom? Is the word of wisdom an end or a means? So what end does the word of wisdom become a means to lead me to? 
what's the chief one? What's the main reason I obey the word of wisdom? It is not a law of health as much as it's a law of revelation. It's a law of revelation. What's the promise? Kenna just gave me a scowl, so I need to take a minute with that, okay? What's the promise of the word of wisdom? Turn to section 89. This is a great example of not confusing an end and a means. So what is, the, what is the promise of the word of wisdom? If I obey the word of wisdom, go to verse 18. Obedience to the word of wisdom brings... Now, here's how our culture, here's how culturally we read it. Culturally, the way the church would read it is, all saints that remember and to keep these saints shall receive health, period. That is not what the Lord said. It is not a law of health. Where do I receive health? By obeying the word of wisdom. In my navel. In my navel. So tell me what my navel was. Long ago, what was my navel? A channel to my parent who fed me through it. Now, those of you who've been to the temple, and I approach that veil, and I connect myself to God, it is through what? It is through what? The navel. God and I are connected through a spiritual navel. You want to total, total my opinion, Bryce Dunford? I think it's still mother. I think I'm connected to my mother in heaven who is feeding me spiritually if I take care of what? My physical body. There's the means that leads to what end? Revelation. Now, you can, take, you can do that with every single gospel principle. Every one of them comes down to increasing my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting and all that that means, making and keeping covenants so that I receive revelation and live that way to the end. I grow grace for grace and become a celestial person. That's the gospel. And the law of the gospel is every instruction to lead me there. Therefore, the specifics in the temple. He gives us a few examples of the law of the gospel, right? And all of them are examples of what? living the higher celestial law. All of them is telling me something I need to do or something I need to let go of. So can you think of the specific examples that are mentioned when you make the law of the gospel, when you, keep, when you covenant to obey the law of the gospel? Can you remember the examples? Something about laughter and prophets. And those are examples of what? 
This is what you need to do, and this is what you need to let go of in order to be a more celestial person. Do you see how this is the instruction manual? And he puts us under covenant to keep the instructions so that I know what to do and what to let go of. Now, what's interesting is are these separate covenants? Doesn't the law of the gospel include chastity? Doesn't the law of the gospel include consecration? So I think what he's doing, my perception of what he's doing, is he's emphasizing a couple very important parts of this. So here are the instructions of what you need to do and what you need to let go of to be more celestial. And here's the whole system. But there's two of those I really want to emphasize. I want to emphasize this one and I want to emphasize this one. But I think those flow into that one. Do you see why we make the law, a covenant to obey the law of the gospel? So let me throw in one more challenge. I believe the covenant implied in the covenant is that you know what the gospel is and isn't. I think he puts us under covenant to know exactly what the gospel is and isn't. Let me give you a couple of examples. Turn to 1st Nephi chapter, or sorry, 3rd Nephi chapter 11. In the very first chapter, the risen Lord says, teaches. So this is Jesus coming to the Americas. And this is the first chapter. 3rd Nephi 11 is the first chapter where Jesus comes. And in that very first chapter, verse 40, guess what he says? He's very adamant. He says, Whoso shall declare more or less than this is not built upon my rock. So I think we could look at the gospel. So here's the law of gospel as a clearly defined box. Here is the law. Here are his instructions as to what I need to do and what I need to let go of to be celestial. And what's he warning us? Some of us are doing what? Some of us are pushing that too far. And some of us are pushing that too little. Do not make more or less. Now, what's happening in the church today? We have a tendency to push. How many people are leaving the church because of something inside that box? Not many. They're leaving the church because of what? Something out here or something out here. Do you know what is in that box and what is not? You promised you would know. 
you promised you would know what is in that box and what is not. A whole lot of things are being passed off as gospel that are not gospel. And there's the danger. He does it again. So 11, he says, don't do more or less. Do not. Notice he said, I'm going to read it carefully. Whoso shall declare more or less than this and establish it for my doctrine. The same cometh of evil and is not built upon my rock. Are you establishing something as doctrine that is not? Let me give you an example. Okay. Is everything a prophet says doctrine? Really? I disagree. I think well, there's a difference between them speaking as a prophet. And how do you know which is which? Do you see there's the rub, right? Yeah. Now, are there people who take something a prophet said that maybe didn't happen or wasn't quite right and they're leaving the church because a prophet said something wrong? But what have they done? Tell me what they did. They pushed the doctrine too far. Is it our doctrine that everything a prophet says is doctrine? No, that is not our doctrine. I can show you a conference prophecy that man will never arrive on the moon. There is a conference prophecy many, many years ago that man will never arrive on the moon. Well, guess what happened in... What happened in 1969? We landed on the moon. Now, does that simply make the prophets false? No, it may have just been their opinion. And therefore, you need to know what is our doctrine and what is not. What are you establishing more as doctrine or less? You see the challenge in which you live? A whole lot of people have established something as doctrine that is not doctrine. More or less cometh of evil. Well, I can't remember. Either Elton Crossman or Elton Anderson, they both spoke on this topic. And one of them said, and I thought it's a great rule of thumb, is they said, I'm paraphrasing, something like the doctrine will not be found in an obscure paragraph in the talk. And it will generally in one be, talk. And it will generally be taught by all 15. Yep. You're welcome to join us, but this is the previous class. Oh, okay. Prophet of God, April 2018, um, by Elder Anderson. Yep. I can't remember exactly which one, but he, this is right after President Nelson was sustained. So. And so my, my invitation to you, as part of living what's in the box, is knowing what's in the box. And knowing what's out. Let me just do one more. Now, I want you to see how often Jesus addresses this. That was 11. The first chapter, he's here. And then go, now go to 18. After he institutes the sacrament, notice what he says in verse 13. 3 Nephi 18, 13. Whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock. Don't push it too far, but don't 
not push it far enough. So what is our doctrine? What is truth? What is in that box and what is not? Not only does this covenant include obeying what's in the box, it includes knowing what is in the box. Let me leave you with, sorry, let me get that door. Let me leave you with a poem. Now you tell me which of these six knows truth? Which of these six knows what's true? Ready? It was six men of Indostan to, much in, to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and, happened to, and happening to fall against its broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl, goodness neat me, but the elephant is very much like a wall. The second fell, the second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. Elephants are spears. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirmy trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out to eager hands and felt about the knee. What most, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed long and loud, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Is an elephant a spear? Could I possibly convince number two that an elephant is not a spear? He's adamant, right? Do you know truth? Do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and the laws that make it up? We have covenanted to obey those laws, but we have covenanted to not make more or less. And so I leave you with that challenge. Do you know what is true? Or are you holding on to the conviction that an elephant is a snake? I know it. I have experience. An elephant is a snake. You're wrong. No truth. 
Not more, not less, no truth. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.